We'll turn over to Acts 17. And we'll talk a little bit. Hopefully today we won't get sidetracked. Last time I was going to finish Acts 17, you got me sidetracked. You got me talking about something else. So we'll talk through Acts 17 and finish it today. But And then we'll go to Acts 18, which is another great chapter in the Bible, another great place in the Bible. Next week we'll go to Corinth. And today we're in Athens. But let me tell you how we got to Athens and if you go back to Acts chapter 16, of course, Paul goes on his second missionary journey. And so he goes again out of the church of Antioch. The church of Antioch sends him out just like they did off the first missionary journey. And so this missionary journey, he doesn't go with Barnabas like he did on his first one. Him and Barnabas kind of had a disagreement and they split and kind of went opposite directions. But this missionary journey, Paul takes some people with him to travel and to minister with him. And so the people that go with him on this second missionary journey are Silas, and they are Timothy, and they are Luke. So those are kind of his traveling companions and those who will minister to him. And so they end up, they don't start out going here, but they end up going to where God calls them, and they go to Greece. And so first place they go in the Greek islands is Philippi. And so, of course, that is a great story where they go to Philippi and they meet Lydia, the seller of purple, and she comes to Christ. And then, of course, later they are thrown into jail. And that's when Paul and Silas are worshiping in the middle of the night and they're praying. And God just answers that prayer miraculously. And the Philippian jailer is saved. And that little group, the Philippian jailer and the demon-possessed girl and Lydia, that starts the church of Philippi. And then later we get the book of Philippians writing back to that church. And so they go to Philippi. Then after Philippi, they go to Thessalonica. And of course, that's where we get Thessalonians in our Bible. While they're in Thessalonica, they're persecuted because there are some Jews there in Thessalonica that don't like what they're teaching about Christ Jesus. So they're persecuted. So they leave Thessalonica, they go to Berea. And what happens is the people from Thessalonica that were persecuting them follow them to Berea and they persecute them there and get the city stirred up trying to harm them, harm Paul, persecute them. And so what happens in Berea is basically in the middle of the night, the church there in Berea, the believers, the new believers there, save Paul, they protect Paul, and they get him out of Berea, and they take him to Athens. And Berea is about 260, 70 miles from Athens, so they have to get there by boat. So some believers travel with Paul, get him to Athens, get him to safety, then they turn around and go back. To Berea, and Paul sends a message, hey, send my companions with me, send those ministering to me, Silas, Timothy, and Luke, send them back to me. So where we're going to pick up reading today, Paul is in Athens, and everyone else is still in Berea. They haven't made it to Athens yet, so Paul is by himself in this city, and he is in this city, which is a very, very, very pagan city in the world, which most Roman cities were pagan cities. And the difference about Athens is Athens was kind of the center of paganism because Athens was the cultural center of the world at this time period because, of course, it is under Roman control now. But we know from the city of Athens, we get most of the great philosophers, many of the great poets of the day. Some we still read today, like Socrates and Aristotle and Plato, and then you have like Homer's Odyssey, a poet, a writer. So, so much comes out of Athens, like Greek mythology. And democracy that we have today, guess where it started? It started in Athens. So that's the foundation, really, of our nation, 
from a political standpoint, from a government standpoint. So, so much happened in Athens, and it really was the cultural center of the Roman Empire, so much so that the Roman Empire, the common language of the Roman Empire was Greek. It was Koine Greek. And so, guess what your New Testament is written in? It's not written in English. The New Testament was written in what? Koine Greek, because it is the common language of the world at that time. And so Athens was the center of all that. The most prominent university in the world at that time was in Athens. So this was a very educated city, a learned city. It was a city that people looked to to get what they believed and to get it from there. And so the thing about this city is, of course, it was very, very pagan. And they didn't have the gospel of Jesus Christ. They did not have the word of God. They didn't have anything. So what they worshipped and who they idolized was things they could come up with in their mind. And so in the city of Athens, it's estimated at about the time Paul gets there, which is AD 50, about the time that he gets there, there are over 30,000 idols in the city of Athens. And when I say idol and I say 30,000 of them, this means that there are 30,000 like statues or something made to worship. And so you would walk down the street and maybe in the side of a building they would have something carved out and there would be a statue there, an idol to worship. And people would bring sacrifices to it and they would bow down and worship it. Now think about that. In a city, there were 30,000 of these. And what's more amazing, by AD 50, there's only 10,000 people. So there's 10,000 people here and 30,000 idols. I mean, it's incredible. So you just take your pick of what you want to worship, basically. And that's what they did. The people of Athens worshipped everything. And all of the things that they worshipped were things that they could come up with in their own mind. Because these idols had to be made of human hands. They had to be thought up by human minds. And so all this was was a humanistic society. They literally worshipped themselves by worshipping idols. Now, not much has changed in 2,000 years, right? Our culture is the same way. We do the exact same thing. And we not might have statues to worship, but do we worship idols in the Western culture, especially in the United States? And who are those idols basically modeled after? Ourselves. They're made up, thought up by human minds. So you're going to see as we read Acts 17 and some of the philosophers that Paul debates here, you're going to see that not much has changed in 2,000 years. And as we read this, what I want you to think about from Paul's perspective, I want you to bring it to modern day and I want you to think about some of the missionaries I asked you to pray for earlier. Missionaries going to places in the 1040 window. And when I say the 1040 window, the 1040 window is just a window that's basically longitude and latitude, but it's primarily North Africa, the Middle East, and Asia, parts of Asia. And most of our missionaries now that we send go to this window. And the reason they go to this window is because it's the most unreached parts of the world, places that have never heard Jesus, places that don't know anything about Jesus. So we send missionaries there to share the gospel there. And so many of our missionaries are just like the Apostle Paul in Acts 17. They go to a city without any Christian influence whatsoever. They are the first people to ever take Christ to a city. They're the first people to ever say the name Jesus. And the people look at them like they're crazy because they don't even know what they're talking about. Now that's hard for us in our mind to reconcile, right? 
because you grew up with the Bible. You grew up with Jesus. You grew up with churches everywhere. But most places in the world don't have that. There are still two to three billion people on the earth right now that have no access to Christ Jesus. Think about that. Billions of people have no access to Jesus because we don't have enough missionaries to get them access to Jesus. We don't have the Bible written in their language to get them the Bible in their own language. So there are billions of people on this earth just like the city of Athens. So let's just put yourself in Paul's shoe for a moment. If you were to go to one of these cities, what would you do? Where would you start? Where would you start with a people who knew nothing about the God you serve, who knew nothing about Jesus Christ, who have no concept of the Bible, what would you do? Start at the beginning. And where's the beginning? You got to start in Genesis. What do you think Paul's going to do in Acts 17? He's going to do that. He's going to start at the beginning. Okay, here's a question. Who are you going to start with? You got to start in the beginning with somebody, right? Somewhere. Anyone who will listen? Well, that's a big one right there. We can talk about that one in a minute. Yeah, Michael. Where are you? Yeah. I mean, where? Who? Well, okay, now that, and that's very interesting because we're going to see this is what Paul does in Athens. He goes to a marketplace. It's. Uh huh. Yeah, so he needed transportation to even get there. That got him the motorcycle. Right. But he still needed to get there. So there... Yeah, that actually took him. Here's the problem. There's many faceted problems here. Okay? And we've mentioned several of them. Okay, now remember, when we pray for our missionaries, the vast majority of our missionaries are just like you and I. They grew up in the U.S. And they grew up and are raised out of a Southern Baptist church. What that means for most of them is they do not have a language of where they're going. So let's just say they're going to North Africa, like many of our missionaries are. They can't go to a marketplace, and they can't even go knock on a door because the people ain't going to understand a word they say. I mean, they're not. So how are you going to share Jesus with somebody if they don't even know what you're talking about because they can't understand your language? What do you do? I know. But that's rare. That's even hard to find depending on where you are and depending on the language. So what do you do? Well, I'll tell you the first thing you got to do. Now, Paul didn't have to do this because he was blessed. The Roman Empire had a common language that he could speak. 
But the world doesn't have that. Now, English is probably the most common denominator from a language around the world, but there are many places in the world, and I've been to many of them, that don't speak English. And if you speak English, they ain't got a clue what you're saying, and you sure ain't got a clue what they're saying. Okay, so the first thing you got to do before you do anything is you got to learn some language. Okay, I'm just telling you that ain't easy. That ain't easy. Especially if you go to some places where you're learning a weird form of Arabic or you're learning a weird form in an Asian country, it's difficult to learn language. I mean, let's just say I started teaching you all Spanish right now. And other than Miss June, everybody else would struggle in here with Spanish. Okay? You would struggle. And so let's just think about how long it would take me to teach you just to sit down and have a competent conversation with someone that only speaks Spanish. How long would it take? It would take a while. Now, you might be able to ask, well, where's the bathroom, or what time is it, or where's lunch? You might be able to ask simple questions, but I'm talking about having a conversation because if you're going to start with the beginning and creation and you're going to talk about Genesis, you're going to have to have some words to do that, right? And then if they ask you a question, you're going to have to have to understand the question and then have enough words to answer the question and language to answer the question. I'm telling you, missions is hard. It is difficult. And so most of our missionaries spend their first three, four years doing nothing but learning language. And they try to take that and share the gospel in small ways. But they're just learning language and they're learning culture. And it's difficult. It's work. Anybody like school? I hate school. I hated school. I hated it. hated it. But that's what it's like going on the mission field. You're in school for four years just trying to get enough language to be able to tell someone about Jesus. So that's the really start of it. And then once you get that, you got to find people who will listen to you. And then you got to share. And then you just got to rely on the power of the Holy Spirit, right? But here's the wonderful thing. What are we commanded? What are we called to do? We're not commanded. We're not called to save anyone, right? All we're commanded, called to do is just be faithful what God's given us. And what has He given us? He's given us Jesus. And we're told to share it. And guess what? You don't have to go overseas to do that. It's wherever you are because you are a missionary if you are a follower of Jesus Christ. The only question is the location of your mission, right? And so all of you are a missionary. So let's look at what the Apostle Paul did as a missionary and we'll see what I believe all of us should have and all of us should do. So if you have your Bible, look there. We'll just start reading there in verse 16. Acts 17, 16. Now remember, Paul has just gotten to Athens from Berea. It says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply troubled by all the idols he saw everywhere in the city. Now, that's where it starts. Okay, why do you think Paul was deeply troubled? And I don't know that that's a really good translation. I don't know how you would really translate this word in Greek. But the word, what it means, is it kind of means, I guess, a righteous anger, maybe would be a better way to say it. It's very similar to Jesus in Matthew chapter 9 when he sees the crowds and he feels compassion for them because they're confused and helpless like a sheep without a shepherd. Okay, this is, and I tell you, I'll, that, I preach that all the time because I prayed it for the church for an entire year. 
But that word compassion is not what Jesus felt. The word Jesus felt would be more like grief, heartache, brokenness. And so that's what this word is trying to tell us here in the Greek in Acts 17. But it's also combined with an anger, a righteous anger. Because he sees these people who are so learned and so educated and so looked up to by the world because everybody in the world thinks, oh, this is the place that has it all together and they're the ones that know everything. But yet, what are they doing? They're worshiping idols. They don't have the truth even though they think they know it all. They don't have truth. And he is troubled by that because he knows the truth. Because guess what? He was just like them, right? I mean, he was just like them. Before Acts chapter 9, did Paul think he had it all figured out? Yeah. Was Paul arrogant? He's still arrogant here, but he was really arrogant before Christ and before the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay, he was arrogant. He thought he had it figured out, and he was going around killing those who he thought was wrong. That's what he was doing to the church. He was persecuting them. And so he gets to this city who is as arrogant as he is and think they have it all figured out, and they just think he's a dummy is what they really think about him. And it just deeply troubles him as he walks up and down the streets and he sees these idols. And so he has to do something about it. Now, the truth should be the same for us. And for whatever reason, we see things like this in our own neighborhoods, our own society, but we're not troubled by them anymore. They just become commonplace and they become everyday and we don't even think about them. And one of the reasons I love short-term missions and I love taking you overseas and seeing different cultures and seeing things like Paul saw in the city of Athens is because it opens your eyes. And then you come back here and you can see some of the same things right here in our city. And then you can do what God has called you to do here because you live here. You don't live over there. Does that make sense? That's why short-term missions is so important for us. We don't do a whole lot when we go on a short-term mission trip over there. We just don't because we don't have language, we don't have culture, we don't have time. But it's to open your eyes and to wake you up so that you're deeply troubled when you come back to where God has planted you so that you'll do the exact same Paul does, share Jesus Christ with those who are dark and those who need hope. And that's what he does. Verse 17. So Paul, he went to the synagogue to reason, the word means to debate, to reason with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles. So we've talked about this every missionary journey Paul goes on. This is what he does. He goes to the synagogue first because he has some common ground with them because he's a Pharisee. He knows everything they do. He did it with them for so long. So he always goes there first and starts his ministry there. But here in Athens, he does something else. And this is what we even mentioned earlier. And he spoke daily in the public square to all who happened to be there. Okay, what is the public square? That is just kind of the center of the city. That is where people went to shop. That is where people went to eat. That is where people went to talk and learn about what was going on in society. This is where everyone kind of fellowshiped. Does that make sense? And so that's where he went every day. And what was he doing? He was looking for people to listen to him so that he could tell them about Jesus. And so here's just a common thread throughout the Bible if you're going to share Jesus, guess what you got to do? You got to go somewhere. You got to go to somebody to share. They're probably not coming to you, right? If you sit on your butt in your house all day watching TV, how many gospel conversations are you going to have? Probably not many. Hate to tell you that, but you probably ain't going to have many gospel conversations. 
You got to get up and you got to do something, right? And you got to go somewhere. And you got to go to where people are who need the gospel. And so what did Paul do? He went to where people need the gospel. And daily he went and he shared there. That's what he did. Okay. Look at uh, verse 18. He also had a debate with some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. Okay, just real quick. We see this in our day. But the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers were pretty important, pretty prominent. And basically what these philosophers were, were these were men who studied under Epicurus, the philosopher Epicurus. So they were called Epicurean, just like we're called what? Because we study Jesus. We're called Christians, right? So that's why they're called Epicureans. Now the Stoics were studying the philosopher Zeno, so I don't know why they weren't called something back Zeno, but they were called Stoics. But here's who these guys were. They were totally different. The Epicureans were basically hedonists. And so if you've ever heard the modern-day term hedonism, it pretty much comes out of Epicurus. Epicurus believed basically this. All there is is this life, so you basically live it, you eat, you party, you be merry, because tomorrow you're going to die and then you don't seem to exist. So eat, be, and be merry. And Epicurus didn't believe in gods. He didn't believe there was a beginning. He didn't believe there's an end. It's only this life. Once you die, it's over. And he didn't believe in anything else. There was no creation. He believed this just started kind of like our creation did today out of evolution, just an atom combusted or something, and we got all we got today. So, I mean, he was pretty stupid, but a lot of people followed him. Now, Stoics were just the opposite. Now, what do you think we get today from Zeno, the Stoic philosopher? Have you ever met somebody that's Stoic? Well, yeah, you have. What does Stoic mean? It means basically with no emotion, right? And so that's what a Stoic was. And you basically tried to live on an even keel plane. And the reason for that is because God was in everything. They were pantheists. Does anybody know what a pantheist is? We have pantheists today. The environmental movement is made out of pantheism. But pantheism just means that God is in everything. So God is in the tree. God is in the rock. God is in the cloud. God is in you. Everything is a God. So they fit in pretty well in Athens because there were 30,000 gods. So everything is a god. That's what Zeno, the Stoic philosopher, believed. So these Epicureans and these Stoics, guess what they would do when they would come to the marketplace? They would debate each other because they believed two polar opposite things. And so Paul went and he debated with both of them. And they gang up on Paul because it's like, he's crazy. Okay? So this is what it says. When he told them about Jesus... And his resurrection, they said, what's this babbler trying to say with these strange ideas that he has picked up? He seems to be preaching about some foreign gods. Now, who had the strange ideas? These dudes had the strange ideas, but they think Paul has a strange idea. Why? Because he talks about Jesus and he talks about the resurrection. Is that always not the dividing point? And I'm telling you, you can go and you can talk about any God you want to talk about. But when does it set people off? Is only when you talk about Jesus, right? I mean, it amazes, it fascinates me today. I mean, it really does in our culture. I mean, you can talk about Muhammad and you can talk about Allah and you can see things that are happening in Israel and there are things they're doing in the name of Allah. 
And people aren't set off by that. They don't even get mad about it. But if somebody was doing those same things and they were doing it in the name of Jesus, what would our society do? I mean, they'd go nuts. So, Of course, they wouldn't because that's not who we follow. But it's just amazing to me what gets people riled up. And it's the name of Jesus. And I'm going to show you why. Because Paul tells you. Because this is what happens next. Verse 19. Then they took Paul to the high council of the city. Okay, so depending on what Bible you have here, your Bible might even read Mars Hill here, depending on what you have. But basically what they did is they took Paul to the Supreme Court of Athens. These were 12 men who kind of decided on law, decided on philosophy. These were the 12 leading men of the city, and they wanted Paul to go talk to them because they wanted these guys to hear what he had to say. And that's what they do. They say, come tell us about this new teaching. You are saying some rather strange things, and we want to know what it's all about. Now, why did they want to know what it's all about? Well, Luke tells you in verse 21, he puts parentheses around it, but then he just gives you context here. He said, it should be explained that all the Athenians, as well as the foreigners in Athens, seem to spend all of their time discussing the latest ideas. So that's what they did. They liked the latest ideas. They liked to hear about new gods. They liked to evolve. They liked to be smarter than everybody else. That's what they thought of themselves. So now Paul's standing before the Supreme Court of Athens. And so he's about to preach a sermon. And the beginning of this sermon is very enlightening to not only what was going on in Athens, but what's going on in the world right now. So look at verse 22. It says, So Paul's standing before the council addressed them as follows. Men of Athens. Now he's very formal here because he's in a formal setting. He says, men of Athens, I notice that you are very religious in every way. Okay, now that is a horrible translation. Uh, because that is not what that word means. If I say the word religion to you, what are you thinking about when I say religious? I mean, I mean, you can think of a lot of things, but it's more about worship, right? It's, now, you can be of different religions, but let me just tell you what this word means. It means demonic, is what it means. He basically stands before the men of Athens, and he says, I notice that you're demonic. Now, is that a good way to start a sermon? If I come in here next week and say, hey, y'all are a bunch of demons. Let me tell y'all what y'all need to hear. That's probably not going to get me a lot of brownie points, is it? But here's what's amazing in Athens. Do you think this bothered them? I mean, what was a demon to them? Just another God. It's just another God. Just something else to worship. But Paul's telling you something really important here about religions, about idols, about anything apart from Christ Jesus. What is he telling you the source of it all is? Demonic. It's satanic. Do you understand that? I mean, think about it. Anything 
apart from Christ Jesus, is not from God. It is not a way to God. It is not something to play around with because it is demonic. Does this make more sense when Paul writes Ephesians in Ephesians 6 and he says we're not fighting against flesh and blood? What are we fighting against? Principalities. We're fighting against things we can't even see. Strong forces. And that's why Ephesians is so important in your Bible. So here's a great question. If you have family members, you have friends, you have neighbors that don't believe in Jesus and they believe in something else, what are they worshiping? They're worshiping themselves, but in reality, they're worshiping demons. It's demonic. It's all demonic. No matter what religion you want to talk about, give me a religion. Okay, we're going to talk about Hinduism. Is that demonic? Yeah. Give me another one. Okay, we can sit here all day and name religions. Is Buddhism demonic? Yeah. Is Islam demonic? Yeah. And it, just some interesting, if you want to do it, I'll give you a great study to do one day. Okay, and it just proves Paul's point here. One day you ought to go do a study, a comparison and a contrast between Mormonism and Islam. They're almost identical. How is that? They didn't come from the same place, did they? They don't have the same ideas, the same thoughts about anything. But you study their pattern and you study the revelation, you study what they believe, you study how they practice what they do. They're the same. Why? Because they're demonic. They come from the same source. And you can do that with all religions. And so that's what Paul's saying here. He's saying everything you worship is from Satan. It's demonic. It's demonic. It's a lie. But he goes on. He says, For I was walking along, and I saw many shrines. And one of your altars had this inscription on it, To the unknown God. This God whom you worship without knowing is the one I am telling you about. Now again, that seems innocuous to us. But what does Paul say there? He says something very important. This is what? The one. Uno, one. Now remember, how many gods did they have in Athens? Over 30,000 of them. Is this a different teaching for them right now? Yeah, because there's one God and only one God. And this is what he's trying to tell them. And this is where he starts. Verse 24. He is the God who made the world and everything in it. Since the, it's the Lord of heaven and earth, He doesn't live in man-made temples. So He goes back to the beginning of creation and starts with God who created everything and He is the foundation of everything. And He's standing right next to the Parthenon, one of the greatest temples in the world, which has 
the idol Athena built inside of it, made of ivory and gold, 42 foot tall, and people from all over the world come to see this thing. This is where he's standing. And he's saying, guys, you're worshiping lies because God does not live in these man-made temples. That's not who he is. He is the God of heaven and he is the God of earth. He goes on, and human hands can't serve his needs for he has no needs. He himself gave life and breath to everything and he satisfies every need. Now you can go all over the world and you can see what Paul's talking about. All these places in the world that worship different things, whether it be ancestors or whether it be gods, they have temples and they have shrines and they have places built with idols that they go and worship. And do you know what they do for these gods that they are worshiping? They bring sacrifices. They bring gifts to them. They'll bring money or they'll bring food or they'll bring flowers. Why? Because these gods need this in the afterlife to survive. That's what they think. Paul's trying to tell them, no, that is not who God is. God is the creator. He is the maker. He is the sustainer. He is everything. And you have missed it. And after creation, he tells what God did. He says, from one man, he created all nations throughout the whole earth. He described beforehand when they should rise and fall. And he determined their boundaries. His purpose was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him, though He is not far away from any of us. For in Him we live and move and exist, as some of your own poets have said. We are His offspring. And since this is true, we shouldn't think of God as an idol designed by craftsmen from mere gold or silver or stone. Why? Well, he tells you. Because God overlooked people's ignorance about these things in earlier times. But now he commands everyone everywhere to repent of their sins and turn to him. Now, this is the gospel. Whew, then that's a big one. We probably spent some time there. Okay, but let's talk about it. Okay, in the past, he overlooked ignorance. Okay, and we talked about this some a couple weeks ago. Even in the Old Testament, did God fully reveal himself to the nations, to the Jews, to anyone? No, God, over time, has revealed himself kind of in stages maybe, right? Over time, He reveals a little bit more. And He reveals a little bit more about salvation and how to be saved and how to be made right with God. Okay, so let's think about it from an Old Testament perspective. And you read the book of Hebrews to get this. But if you had a Jew in the Old Testament that God had revealed Himself to, and God had given the law to them, okay, how was that Jew going to be saved or going to be made right with God? Only by what he had, right? Through sacrifice, through worship in a temple, through what God had said. This is what they had. That's all they knew, right? They didn't have Christ yet. Everything pointed to Christ. They didn't know that. So how were they saved? According to Hebrews, it was through the faith in what they had, right? Because that's how they were saved. Okay, so is it different now when Paul's talking 
in AD 50 in Acts chapter 17. Because God has what now? What has He done? He's truly revealed everything. He's revealed Christ Jesus. He's revealed the way to salvation. He's revealed the one, the only way to come to Him for the forgiveness of sins. And so when you repent, that word's a big word. We're, probably, we're going to talk about this word more next week. When you repent, what are you doing? You're changing your mind about something. Or you're turning from one way and you're turning to another. And so now... That's through Jesus. And how do we know? Well, Paul says how we know it's Jesus, and it's only Jesus. Verse 31, For he has set a day for judging the world with justice by the man he has appointed and proved to everyone who this is by raising him from the dead. So how do we know that God has truly revealed himself to us? How do we know that Jesus is not just a way and not the way? How do we know that? The resurrection changed it all. Because without the resurrection, what are we doing? Well, Paul tells us in Corinthians, we're the ones that should be mocked and laughed at. Without the resurrection, we have no hope. We have no faith. Because we're believing a lie. But because of the resurrection, because of the raising of Christ, we know this is truth. Because who else has been raised from the dead? Muhammad? I mean, what other prophet, whatever priest, what other person has been raised from the dead so that we can have assurance that what we believe and what we know about God through Christ Jesus has been revealed and we know the way? Only through the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus changes everything. Everything, 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 everything. And without it, we're to be more pitied than anybody on this earth. That's what Paul says. But the resurrection changes everything. So now, there is no ignorance. Right? There is no ignorance. There is only Jesus. And He is the dividing point of history. And He is what divides those who come to God and those who are separated from God. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Does that make sense? Probably not. We'll talk more about it next week when we talk about repentance. Because we're going to talk about that Greek word repentance and talk about what it means. But just real quick, because my time's up, look at verse uh, 32. Because this is what happens every time the gospel is shared. When they heard Paul speak about the resurrection of the dead, some laughed in contempt, but others said, we want to hear more about this later. That ended Paul's discussion with them, but some joined him and became believers. So whenever the gospel is shared, some people are going to be saved, some people are going to remain lost. Because that's what happens. The gospel divides. It divides. But what I want you to understand, without the preaching of the gospel, no one can be saved. They can't. And that's why my prayer for you, me, this church, 
is just like Paul at the beginning of his journey in Athens when he saw people who were lost and hopeless and without help. It deeply troubled him. So just a question to end. When was the last time you were deeply troubled? Think about it. When was the last time you were deeply troubled? Now here's the second question. What troubled you? Most of the time we get deeply troubled when we see something on the news that we don't like. Most of the time we get deeply troubled when something happens in our life that we don't think is fair. How many of us are deeply troubled because we know someone is about to die and go to hell? Or you have a child or a grandson or a husband. I mean, whatever it is, does that trouble you? I'm just telling you, if it doesn't, something's wrong with you. From a gospel perspective, from a biblical perspective, your heart is hard and your heart is calloused if it doesn't. It's just truth. So pray about it. Pray about it. Because then and only then will you share Jesus with the passion and the urgency and the desperation that the Bible calls you to do it. And unfortunately, the church in America does not have that urgency, that desperation. And that's why the church in America is dying. And that's why people all around us die and go to hell every day. Because we're not even troubled about it. We're not even troubled about it. So I praise John writes in Revelation that you would wake up and He would give you eyes of Jesus. And He would awaken us to do what He's called us to do.